Rumpelstiltskin always says that magic comes with a price. But for this price, you can get a nice piece of jewelry. Use code ONCEPOD for 10% off your first order at Unusual Magic Jewelry on Etsy. Click the link in the description. Welcome to the Once Again Podcast. We are your hosts, Ashley and Jason. In today's episode, we will be discussing the novel, A Game of Thrones, from its prologue through Chapter 8, Brand 2. These are the corresponding book chapters to Episode 1 of Game of Thrones, Winter is Coming. We will attempt to keep spoilers to a minimum in this episode. However, Jason and I have already read all five published books in the Song of Ice and Fire series, so it is possible we may discuss some spoilers in covering this material. That's right spoilers are coming so i just want to give a bit of background information before we dive into the plot exactly a song of ice and fire is a series of epic fantasy novels by the american novelist and screenwriter george rr martin he began the first volume of the series a game of thrones in 1991 the book was published in 1996 martin who initially envisioned the series as a trilogy has published five out of the seven planned volumes. The fifth and most recent volume of the series, A Dance of Dragons, was published in 2011 and took Martin six years to write. He is currently writing the sixth novel, The Winds of Winter, and a seventh novel, A Dream of Spring, is planned. A Song of Ice and Fire series takes place on the fictional continents of Westeros and Essos which I forget what he actually, he was recently asked if the planet's name is Planetos, because that's what fans theorized. And it's not, he said it's just Earth, not our Earth, but it's just called Earth. Alternate reality Earth, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I always thought that we were just on like alternate history reality Earth. Yeah. Not exactly in the way that Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is an alternate history, but just, you know, whatever you want to say. The point of view of each chapter in the story is a limited perspective of a range of characters growing from nine in the first novel to 31 characters by the fifth novel. The three main stories intertwine. Dynastic war among several families for control of Westeros, the rising threat of the supernatural others in the northmost Westeros, and the ambition of a deposed king's exiled daughter to assume the Iron Throne. Martin's inspirations included The War of the Roses and the French historical novels The Accursed Kings by Maurice Durand. An assortment of desperate and subjective point of view confronts the reader, and the success or survival of the point of view characters is never assured. Within the often morally ambiguous world of A Song of Ice and Fire, questions concerning loyalty, pride, human sexuality, piety, and the morality of violence frequently arise. The books have sold 90 million copies worldwide as of April of 2019, after having been translated into 47 languages as of January of 2017. The fourth and fifth volumes reached the top of the New York Times bestseller lists upon their release, Among the many derived works are several prequel novellas, 
a TV series, a comic book adaptation, and several card, board, and video games. The author is, of course, George R. R. Martin. The genre is epic fantasy. The publisher is Bantam Books in the United States and Canada and Voyager Books in the United Kingdom and Australia. The first book was published August 1st, 1996, and it is available in print, both hard and paperback, audiobook, and ebook. Which actually, the version that I read was the ebook, and it had all five novels included in it. So it was a pretty good price. Yeah, um, and I'm currently borrowing a paper book copy of the set. So. Yeah. And finally, A Game of Thrones, the first novel in the series, consists of 694 pages, 73 chapters, including the prologue and the appendix, 292,727 words, and the audiobook is 33 hours and 53 minutes long. So let's dive right into it. We start off with the prologue, our point of view character is Will, and the location is the haunted forest. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot here. And uh, here we go in the. Yeah. Garrod, Will, and Sir Waymar Royce, three rangers from the Night's Watch, are tracking a band of wildling raiders in the haunted forest. Will has reported on wildlings that he has found, claiming they are all dead. Garrod, an older man who has been in the Night's Watch for decades, is uneasy and insists that they turn back to the wall. They have eight or nine days of travel ahead of them, which can turn into a fortnight if it snows. Waymar, a noble-born youth of 18, however, has the command, and after making light of Garrett's fears, asks Will again for the details of what he saw. Will explains that he saw the wildlings' encampment. Their lean-to was covered by snow, they had no fire, and none of the wildlings moved the entire time he was watching. They were lying on the ground as if dead, but no blood was visible. Waymar suggests that they might have been sleeping, but Will insists that they are dead. There was also a woman up in a tree, but she did not move either. Garrett suggests that the wildlings have been killed by the cold, but Waymar points out that the weather has not been cold enough to freeze men like that. He asks Will to lead them to the dead wildlings. With night falling, the rangers ride back to the wildling camp. Both Will and Garrod sense something is wrong, but Waymar mocks them again and commands Garrod to stay behind to guard the horses. When Garrod suggests starting a fire, Waymar sardonically orders him not to. Will fears that Waymar's insolence will provoke Garrod into drawing his sword, but Garrod eventually acquiesces and no fire is lit. I hate Waymar so much. <laughs> You know, when we get to it, I'm going to talk about something about him. But yes, he's like, ob- obnoxious. The TV show does not do justice to like how freaked out the other two men are. They will bolt if they could. They would just be out of there. Yeah. And, and we are just like, no, I'm correct. Must do every, we must go on. Like, no. Yeah. Way- Waymar is a, is a privileged POS. It's not in my summary here, but he has very fine clothing, like multiple layers that he's wearing to protect himself from the cold. Yeah, so he's warm, like, compared to the others. Yeah, he comes from a great house in Westeros, and I forget whether he's the second or third born son of that house, but that's why he's in the Night's Watch, because there's no real role for him to fill for his family, so he joined the Night's Watch. Yeah. 
but because he's from a great house, he gets the command of this ranging party. Will and Waymar climb up the ridge, Waymar much noisier than Will. Will reaches his previous vantage point and sees that the bodies are gone. Waymar, walking upright, reaches the top of the ridge and stands in plain sight. Will warns Waymar to get down, but Waymar just laughs. Determined to find the wildlings and make his first ranging a success, Waymar orders Will to climb a tree and look for a fire. Will reluctantly climbs a nearby sentinel tree. Below him, Waymore challenges an unseen foe. Will thinks that he sees a white shadow moving below, but is not sure. He is about to call down a warning, but stops, unsure. Waymore calls to Will with unease in his voice as he turns in a circle with his sword drawn and asks about the sudden cold, which Will also feels. An other emerges from the woods, tall, gaunt, and white, dappled with a gray-green shimmer. Waymar nervously commands it to come no further and prepares himself for battle, challenging the other to dance with him. Will notes that Waymar in that moment is no longer a boy, but truly a man of the Night's Watch. And this is something that when it was adapted to the show, a lot of book readers were disappointed in because Waymar doesn't have the line of saying dance with me then or saying like for Robert, as like he's about to fight the other. Yeah. While Waymar is a POS, like I said, this is not a redeeming more moment for him, but it does show his bravery. Like he at least believes that he's a warrior and stuff from a great house and has to defend yeah. the realm. When more others appear among the trees, Will considers calling out a warning, but decides not to do so, as it would require him to reveal his position. The sword of the first other is made of an inhumanly sharp, translucent crystal. Waymar is able to check the oncoming blows until his parry comes a bit too late and the other's sword cuts through the mail under his arm. Waymar screams for Robert and charges, but as his blade strikes the other's sword, it shatters. One of the shatters hits Waymar's left eye and he falls to his knees blinded. All of the others move in and slash him mercilessly. Will turns his head away for a long time before looking back to see that the others are gone. When he finally dares, Will climbs down, examines Royce's body, then picks up the knight's twisted and broken sword. He decides to bring it back to show their commander, hoping Garrett is still with the horses. When Will stands up again, Waymar has risen and is standing over him. His remaining eye has turned blue, and with an icy cold touch, Waymar's hands go around Will's throat. So there's a lot of differences between the show and the book in this opening. For one, one thing that the show does well is it shows them leaving the wall, whereas here in the book, we're just with them in the haunted forest. Yeah. Um, the reason they did that in the show was because they wanted to give context to the wall being mentioned later in the episode. And because uh, we don't see the wall until I think episode three, if I'm not mistaken but they wanted to give context to it. However, they changed a lot of things that the book does better. I mean, the book does so many things better. Uh, It's like everything else. That's true too. And I mean, I don't, like I said, I haven't watched fully some of the episodes, but I do know that like clearly here, the others are very just others, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not, they come off as very ice zombies in the show sometimes. And like, 
Right. That's not quite what we have going on. Like, mm-hmm. sure, ice zombies in the sense that it's people being brought back to life as cold, icy peoples, but like, they're definitely beyond that smarter. Yeah. And in later chapters of the book series, I believe that there are some stories told about others marrying people from Westeros and having children with them. So the others are similar to humans more so than they are in yeah, the show. They're, they're definitely meant to be others as in just other kinds of humans. Yeah. What I would take from it, like not human. Exactly. Basically, but they're definitely not ice zombies, which is much more what the show chooses to do and And i understand that's probably a lot easier to come across on film right and similar to the targaryens actually they're described as having an otherworldly beauty about them like even though they're terrifying they're still beautiful at the same time and also the whole reason in the show that they're referred to as white walkers is because of one of our favorite shows (laughs) um lost on lost there were characters referred to as the others and dan and dave when they adapted this book into a a show they didn't want to confuse audience viewers who had maybe watched lost and thought of the others from that so they just named you know what i think the issue is though of calling them white walkers is you immediately get the context of zombies because walkers are in the everything Yeah. yeah 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 so like it immediately switches it to zombies instead of like keeping it grounded in what it actually is. Mm-hmm. In this first scene in the in the show, it is a skinny and silhouetted figure that does have some zombie-like qualities. We don't really see it as clearly as we will in later seasons. So they could have gone a different direction with how they looked, but eh, they chose what they chose. I actually think like the this scene in the show and some earlier scenes, I do think they were originally going to go more the, the way that the book goes. But mm-hmm. I do think, you know, you did, like I said, you had the Walking Dead kind of going on at the same time as the Game of Thrones was going on as like two powerhouse shows. Mm-hmm. And I think the minute you start naming something White Walkers and you get, I, I think that was just bound to happen. Yeah. That we were going to get zombie-like more and more. Yeah, I agree. So let's move right along to the first chapter, or the first proper chapter, I guess I should say, and it is Bran 1. Our POV character is Bran, and the location is north of Winterfell. It is the ninth year of summer, and seven-year-old Bran Stark is traveling with a party of 20 men, including his father, Lord Eddard Stark, to see the king's justice done. This is the first time that he is allowed to join, Bran's older brother, Rob, thinks that the man to be executed must be a wildling sworn to Mance Raider, the king beyond the wall, which makes Bran think of of the tales old Nan told him about the wildlings. The offender turns out to be an old man dressed in the ragged blacks of the Night's Watch, who has lost his ears and finger to frostbite. So it's Garrod from our previous prologue chapter. Lord Eddard questions the man briefly. The two guardsmen drag the man to the stump of a tree, and Theon Greyjoy, Eddard's ward, brings Eddard his Valerian steel sword, Ice. Eddard pronounces the sentence, the desertion of the Night's Watch is punished by death, and raises the blade. Jon Snow, Bran's bastard brother, reminds Bran not to look away, 
So Bran watches as his father strikes off the man's head with a single stroke. The head lands near Theon, who laughs and kicks it away. John calls Theon an ass under his breath and compliments Bran on his poise during the execution. And that's something that was very clearly removed from the show. We don't see Theon kicking the head. Oh, well, also, which character escaped the White Walkers has changed in the show. It's Will. I think they also, but I, I kind of get that because I think they tried they tried not to make Theon that much of a terrible person immediately <laughs> in the show, despite like literally episodes later where you're like, oh, nope, Theon's kind of terrible. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It wasn't until my second watching of the first episode that I got that Theon wasn't a Stark. Like I thought Theon was one of the brothers. Like, yeah, he's very much like there as he could easily be family. Mm-hmm. Also, something to consider is that in the show, all the children are much older than they are. Oh, yes. Like, yeah. Bran is seven. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not just the children, too. Like, Ed, Edard and Catelyn are aged Oh, up. yeah. They basically aged everyone up. Yeah. That was, I know, done because of Daenerys' character. Like, they didn't yeah. want to have a 13-year-old going through the things that Daenerys goes through on the show. So they aged her up. So they aged up everyone else. Not exactly correspondingly, like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess Daenerys is supposed to be around 18 or 20 in the show, and she's only 13 in the book. Other characters are aged up somewhat greatly. I mean, I love Sean Bean. He's the whole reason that I watched Game of Thrones in the first place, but he's like in his 50s and Eddard Stark's in his 30s in the book. So they definitely took a lot of liberties with age changing. Right. Which, again, I understand. Also, I always, like, I still take it, even though, like, I know she's, like, 13 in the books. Like, Danny in the show to me is, like, 16, 17. Like, still not legal in my, like, head. Yeah. Because it doesn't, like, doesn't make sense for her to be. Yeah, you know, it's just her and John and uh, Rob are all supposed to be around, around the same age. Yeah. Um, so, I, I the, Jon Snow and... Uh, robbed me their actors don't look like they're in their teens they look like they're in their 20s so i don't know but let's let's dive back into it <laughs> on the way back to winterfell rob and john argue about whether or not the deserter died bravely before racing their horses to the bridge leaving bran and his pony behind eddard rides up and asks bran if he knows why he executed the man himself bran replies that the man was a wildling eddard corrects that the man was a deserter, then explains that the first men from who the Starks descend believe that the man who passes the sentence should perform the execution himself, lest he become too comfortable with ordering deaths. And the Starks still hold to that principle. So here we also see a major change from the show. We get a mention of the first men. We're building this world out way more in the books than the show got to build out and at this also point. we're seeing yeah you know, like you know we see in the show but the starks are very like i wouldn't say religious or like pious but they're very like we stick to the old ways mm-hmm. since the old ways have kept us safe mm-hmm. yeah it, it's it's interesting they don't really discuss it on the show but when you get into the books the north is the size of the other seven kingdoms put together like it's just as large yes. and that that's just from uh, i can't remember what it's called but where the reeds live in the north howland reed and his family where like the yeah. the border first starts up to the wall 
That's not even including what's beyond the wall, which I guess would technically also be, be the north. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's larger than the other six kingdoms, I guess I should say, uh, put together. And you think about the geography, it is, and it's so cold all year long, whether it's summer or not, that people aren't going to want to travel up to the north. So if you have a religion there, chances are, you know, just by the vast geography that would have to be covered. The well, seven- you know, we can we can talk about it in the next chapter. We okay. think Catlin's yeah. chapter is very good for discussing like the differences in religions and you're right because we're, I think that's the yeah this episode's going to be long enough already without me going into my tirades <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> all right sorry so John calls from up ahead for them to come see what he and Rob have found they find Rob holding something in his arms next to the corpse of a wolf larger than Brand's pony John correctly identifies the corpse as a dire wolf Theon comments that dire wolves have not been seen south of the wall for 200 years Bran then notices that Rob is cradling a small pup and gives it a stroke after Rob reassures him. Then John gives him another pup. When they inspect the mother's corpse, they find a large piece of shattered antler lodged in her throat. The soldiers in the company feel this to be a bad omen. Theon offers to kill the pups, but Bran protests. Eddard initially states killing them would be best, but changes his mind when John points out that there are five pups one for each of Eddard's legitimate children. Since the dire wolf is the sigil of House Stark, they must be meant to have the wolves. Bran immediately realizes, along with everyone else, that the comparison only works because John is not claiming a pup for himself. Rob and Bran both declare that they are willing to nurse their pups by hand themselves. Eddard suggests that the children must feed and raise the pups themselves, not pass them off to the servants, and they must treat them well, lest they become dangerous. Both Rob and Bran state that they will not allow the pups to die. As they begin to ride away, John hears a noise and goes back to discover a sixth pup, an albino with red eyes that had crawled away from its mother. Bran finds it curious that it is the only pup who has opened its eyes. Theon claims that the albino will die quicker than the others, but John disagrees, claiming it for himself. So I do want to say here, I think what's even more like when John is not claiming a pup for himself, he does in fact call Eddard father in the book. He doesn't do that in the show, but he directly says father in the book. Right. Like that's not something we see in the show. He kind of keeps saying your father, your father or Mm -hmm. Lord Stark. But John very much refers to Ned as his father in the books. Agreed. And also something like my summary here changes the wording around a little bit, but John is the only one who can actually hear the albino pup calling out like no one else hears it. A lot yeah. of fan, a lot of fans theorize that it was a mental connection between the two of them. That's why he heard it and no one else did. But we'll get into that in later books. Anything else you want to say about this chapter or move right no. along? Okay. Also, wasn't I believe now it's in the it's in this next chapter that it gets described how much John looks like Eddard. Um, yeah. So the, speaking of that, the next chapter is chapter two, and it is Catelyn one, and our POV character is Catelyn Tully, and it is located in Winterfell. 
So Catelyn Stark seeks out her husband, Eddard, in the Godswood following his return to Winterfell. By the way, I'm going to be going back and forth between Catelyn Stark and Catelyn Tully saying it because the book kind of does that too. It refers to her both ways. Yeah. Catelyn Stark seeks out her husband, Eddard, in the Godswood following his return to Winterfell. She knows her husband always goes there after executing a man. She finds the Godswood very dark and unsettling compared to the sunny one she remembers from her childhood home in Riverrun. Unlike her own family, the Starks keep faith with the old gods rather than the faith of the seven, which was something we were briefly mentioning before. Yeah, and like I said, you kind of, she kind of describes it too, like, again, that the Starks are keeping to the old ways. They kind of worship the weirwoods as their gods, like, (laughs) more so. And they don't, they don't really keep to the faith of seven. And like faith of seven is much more of a like Christian sort of thing and how it's run when you think about it. So. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Agreed. Like they have, they have a Pope for, it's not called yeah. the Pope, but they have a Pope. So Catelyn finds Ned polishing his ancestral great sword ice under the heart tree at the center of the grove. He asks after the children, and Catelyn tells them that they are deciding the names for their new wolves. Ned notes that the man he executed is the fourth deserter this year. He adds that the man was half mad, that something had put a great fear into him so deep that he could not reach him. The Night's Watch is dwindling, down to less than a thousand men, and not just from deserters, but from ranging casualties. One day, Ned may have to call his banners to face Mance Raider himself. Catelyn warns him that there are darker things beyond the wall. Ned replies that the others have been dead for 8,000 years and that Maester Lewin claims that they never existed at all. Catelyn replies that nobody has seen a dire wolf until today. This is something, too, that I think we should address. One of the reasons that in Westeros, the technology really hasn't developed that much over the last 8,000 years is because of how long their seasons last like where like that that's something that's been explained by george r R. martin just something i thought we should bring up yeah you know right now they're in the long summer so right they're having kind of prosperous times right now but Mm -hmm. with long summers come long nights and winter (laughs) and winter is coming it is coming (laughs) yeah when ned asks why catlin has come she tells him that John Aaron, his foster father, and her brother-in-law is dead. The news came in King Robert's own hand. When asked, Catelyn explains that John Aaron's widow, Catelyn's sister, Liza Aaron, and her son have returned to the Eyrie and says that she thinks her sister should not be alone and should have gone back to River Run. Ned urges Catelyn to take the children to keep her sister company, but Catelyn informs him that Robert Baratheon has also written to say that he is coming to Winterfell. The news gladdens Ned. It has been nine years since he, saw, since he last saw his old friend. However, Catelyn is worried about the omen of the dire wolf found dead in the snow with an antler buried in its throat. Think about how this story changes if, like, Catelyn does, in fact, take the children to the Eyrie, right? Like, mm. she goes, go be with Liza, and she goes, right? And then Ned, instead of Robert coming up, Robert requests Ned down in King's Landing, right? Mm-hmm. There's no one left at Winterfell, you're saying? This entire story goes differently because... Well, the only thing I would think Liza 
we don't really know her character. We don't really know her motivation. But I think if Catelyn arrived with her children, Liza would kick her out because she's following someone else's orders. Maybe, mm. but also we don't have Bran almost dying essentially oh, okay. at the end yeah. of this. You know what I mean? Like you don't, we don't have nearly as like the wild stuff that goes on. Like, you know, cause if you're still having John Aaron die, you still have to come to that conclusion about why he died. But I mm. don't think we have things escalating so quickly. No, you're probably right. But now you just made me picture Bran climbing the Eyrie instead of climbing Winterfell <laughs> and how that castle overlooks that giant, I don't know what you want to say, gorge or whatever. That but Bran is just so short-footed. He'd be yeah. fine. Yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah, I don't, it, it would make a major change. I think even if uh, what I said about Liza kicking them out, I think then Catelyn would go to River Run, like with the children and like be there for a while. And you know, it would make major changes to the plot. Especially because, like, it doesn't sound like any of the children have really been out of the North or, like, seen River Run and seen the eerie thing. Yeah. It'd be interesting. You know, maybe Rob would want to be fostered at River Run or something like that, like, get to know his grandfather um, and his uncle. But, you know, it'd make an interesting what if. But, you know, well, I guess we'll never get to see it as, for now. Yeah. So... With Robert coming, Catelyn confirms with Ned that they should send word to his brother, Benjen, on the wall. Then Catelyn informs Ned that Robert's wife, Cersei Lannister, their children, and her Lannister brothers are also coming. Ned does not like the Lannisters because they came to Robert's cause only after victory was certain. Eddard is looking forward to seeing the children and then announces his worry about feeding them all. So... I do have one issue that like that they have to send word to Benjen to get him to come down. Mm-hmm. But then like later on, it's just but Benjen's a member of the Night's Watch and he's his Wallace, his brothers. It's like, then why was he coming to Winterfell then? Like, shouldn't you now be completely disassociated with your house at that point? Like right. I think they try to have it both ways, especially in the early books, and like, but that's not like the way you talk it's like no you take the black you basically disown your family you're out like you're gone i th- i think you're right i think benjen gets certain privileges because he's first ranger and because his brother is warden of the north and like lord of winterfell and everything like that if he Maybe. was if he was you know like benjen mormont or benjen what are their names I can't think of their names right now. But if he was from some other house in the north, I don't think he would, even if he was still first ranger, I still don't think he would get the privileges of be, that he gets as being Benjamin Stark. I think it just shows another example of how this world is built. That you come from a privileged, a privileged that family. That there's still some nepotism going yeah. on. Or even if he was Benjamin Snow, like let's say he wasn't from a great family at all and was still first ranger, I don't think he would get the privileges that he gets. But he's in an important position at the at the wall. And he, well, seemingly he willingly went to the wall of his own accord. So there, yeah. there's probably some respect from the other Night's Watch members that are there for Benjen because of that. And, you know, whatever. But moving right along, we get to chapter three, which is Daenerys 1. Our point of view character is Daenerys Targaryen, and the location is Pentos. For the past half year... The exiled king, Viserys Targaryen, and his 13-year-old sister, 
Princess Daenerys Targaryen, have been residing in the mansion of Illyrio Mopatis, a magister of the free city of Pentos. Viserys wishes to win back his father's throne and is in need of an army, which he hopes to acquire by making a marriage alliance with a Dothraki cow who leads the large Kalisar. Viserys presents Daenerys with a gift from Illyrio, a fine silk dress. Daenerys has to look like the princess she is, so Cal Drogo will ask for her hand in marriage. Although Daenerys is doubtful of Illyrio's motives, Viserys insists that the magister simply wants to earn his good graces. Afraid of angering her brother, which he calls waking the dragon, Daenerys keeps silent about her mistrust. Viserys warns Daenerys not to fail him and twists one of her nipples to emphasize his threat. According to Viserys, when the history of his reign is written, it will be said that his reign began that night. Viserys departs, leaving Daenerys alone with her thoughts. She dreads the feast she has to attend that evening, and her mind wanders to Westeros, the homeland she has never seen. She had been conceived shortly before her mother, Queen Rayla Targaryen, fled King's Landing with Viserys, and she was born nine months later on Dragonstone. Yet she knows the stories Viserys has told her, the flight from King's Landing to Dragonstone, her eldest brother Rhaegar Targaryen fighting Robert Baratheon and dying, the sack of King's Landing, the gruesome death of Prince Aegon Targaryen, we'll get to that later, and the murder of her father, King Aerys II Targaryen, and the throne room committed by one of his own king's guard. Nine months after the deaths of her brother and father, Daenerys's mother died giving birth to her, something for which Viserys had never forgiven her, during a summer storm that destroyed most of the Targaryen fleet, which had been Dragonstone's last defense. When the garrison of Dragonstone was willing to give Viserys and Daenerys over to Stannis Baratheon, who was on his way to take Dragonstone, Sir Willem Derry and four loyal men secretly took them to Bravos. There they lived in a big house with a red door, which is something that never comes up in the show. However, yeah, well, it doesn't. However, it doesn't. You're yeah, correct. Yeah. Even though it comes up constantly. Yeah, it's like her motivating factor in the books or something. However, Sir Willem died, leaving them without a guardian, and the servants stole the money that was left. When Viserys and Daenerys were put out of the house not long after, they began to travel from city to city, never staying anywhere long, as Viserys feared the usurper's assassins. Daenerys recalls how rich merchants and magisters became less and less willing to host the Targaryens as the years went by, and how Viserys had been forced to sell their mother's crown. However, despite the lack of support, Viserys had become obsessed with recovering the Iron Throne. Daenerys knows that he is being called the Beggar King behind his back, and wonders if the people have given her a nickname too, which is something we can talk about just for a moment. Like, yeah, Viserys is crazy, but Man, imagine going from the, I think I talked about this in our episode about the show, but imagine going from this privileged life to this begging life. And he had to, he had to sell his mother's crown, which was technically his crown. Cause that's like after his father and brother and uh, nephew died, his mother like crowned him as King and everything. 
it's it's tough. You know, you also have to think he's now stuck ta- taking care of his little sister while yeah. also pretty much blaming her and being upset because she's the reason that mom is now dead. Like, right. It's, that it's, man needs therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Which he's not going to get. But yeah, in a certain like he's 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 a dirtball, but in a certain way, you have to feel bad for him. He would have probably been a very different person if his life hadn't gone the way that it did. And also if Robert didn't hate every Targaryen for what Rhaegar did, Viserys and Daenerys could have had pretty good lives. Yeah, I think because, you know, we even see later on with the Starks and how they're treated in some regards that it is possible to treat the children a little better. Yeah, agreed. So Illyrio servants come to bathe Daenerys and prepare her for the feast given at the mansion of Cal Drogo, where she is to meet and impress the cow so he will ask for her hand in marriage. The servants tell her how lucky she is to marry a man so rich that even his slaves wear golden collars. Once she is properly dressed, her brother returns with Illyrio and commands her to stand up and turn around. Illyrio showers Daenerys with compliments, while Viserys complains that she is too skinny and too young. Illyrio reassures him that she is old enough for the cow, and comments on her silver-gold hair and purple eyes, the hallmarks of old Valerian nobility. When Viserys states that the barbarians are said to have queer tastes such as boys and sheep, Illyrio warns him not to say these things to Cal Drogo creating a flare of anger in Viserys's eyes. The three of them journey in Illyrio's litter to Cal Drogo's mansion in the pitch dark. Viserys states that 10,000 Dothraki screamers will be enough to overthrow the usurper when combined with those in Westeros that are still awaiting his return. He speculates on those who would join the cause, House Tyrell, House Redwine, House Derry, House Greyjoy, and the Dornishmen. Illyrio assures Viserys that the people in the Seven Kingdoms secretly await his return, though Daenerys doubts him. As she should. Yeah, although I will say in the later books, when we possibly see another Targaryen show up, the houses that Viserys mentions here might possibly be allies to that Targaryen. That's true. Yeah, so it's it's. But I do think that like... It's right of Danny here. Like, we see that she's very astute in this mm-hmm. chapter, as opposed to her brother, who just kind of accepts everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he's solely focused on one thing, whereas she's grown up her whole life in fear. So every situation that she's in, she assesses, like, what's happening? Who could attack me? What's happening here? Why are they doing that? What's their real motives? Whereas yeah. he just has his one foot. He's blinded by just getting the iron thrown back. Illyrio says that Drogo's mansion was a gift from the Magisters of Pentos to help win Drogo's friendship. They arrive at the mansion and are announced as King Viserys III and Princess Daenerys. Illyrio points out several prominent guests, including Sir Jorah Mormont, who fled the Seven Kingdoms under the sentence of death several years before and has since spent much time among the Dothraki. So this is very different than in the show. Not only do they go to Drogo's mansion, which is completely removed from the show. Drogo just rides up on his horse with two other guys. But we meet Sir Jorah Mormont here. But I also, I think that's just, in the show, it's just easier to be like, 
Drogo's a savage. He doesn't have a house. Like. Yeah. Well, it's difficult to explain. Oh, the Dothraki are such great fighters that to try and appease them rather than having them raid us every couple of months, we just gave them a big mansion and lots of money. <laughs> like, I don't know. It, it It is easier to do in the books to say that than it is in the show. You'd have to have another couple lines or whatever, but yeah, you're right. And they'd have to build another set. So it makes sense to do it the way that they did. Illyrio then points out Cal Drogo himself, who is as graceful as a panther and younger than Daenerys had expected. Viserys notes his long braid, which means he has never been defeated in combat. Daenerys only notes his cold, hard face, and she is afraid of him. She then asks to go home, provoking a rant from Viserys about how their home has been taken away from them. Daenerys only meant their rooms in Illyrio's estate, but none of the places that they have stayed in have been Viserys's home. Viserys also assures Daenerys that he would let Khal Drogo's whole Kalasar, including their horses, rape her if it would win him back the Seven Kingdoms. He then tells her to stop crying because Illyrio is leading Khal Drogo over to meet them. Daenerys stops crying, stands up straight, and smiles. So even, even though she's 13 and being abused, she's a tough girl. She is the toughest of all mm. the ladies. <laughs> There's a fire burning in her. Let's just say that way. Next, we move on to chapter four, Eddard One, everyone's favorite character and not the dumbest person in the Seven Kingdoms. So our point of view, I mean, to, you know, Ned's pretty dumb. Like, we'll, we'll get oh, there. Oh, he's dumb. Yeah. Like he. I think varies in Baelish later, basically, or like, no, you dumb, basically. Yeah. Like, the things they have to tell him, it's yeah. like... You are naive, sir. Yeah. Loyal, great fighter, but dumb. And to be fair, Ned was never supposed to be in the position that he's in, but he ended up where he is. So we get to, like I said, chapter four, Eddard one. Our point of view character is Eddard Stark, and the location is Winterfell. The king's party, 300 strong, rides into Winterfell. Eddard recognizes Sir Jamie Lannister, Tyrion Lannister, Prince Joffrey Baratheon and Sandor Clegane, but he does not recognize his old friend King Robert until Robert calls out. Eddard is shocked to see that Robert has gained eight stone or 112 pounds since they last saw each other nine years ago during the Greyjoys Rebellion. That's so much weight. <laughs> yeah, it really is. The thing that surprises me is that he recognizes Tyrion here. I mean, obviously, you can put two and two, but I don't think he ever actually met Tyrion. He, but you could put two and two together that there's a dwarf that has gold hair. Well, semi-gold and hair. And the queen's brothers are yeah. supposed to be coming. Yeah. So. so, but yeah, it is Robert gained a serious amount of weight. And in the books, he's a very large man, both fat and tall. But he's still, even though he's older now and he's heavy, he is still as strong as he once was when he was a young man. And we'll discuss yes. that that later on in the books as well. Eddard pays obscience as Queen Cersei and the younger children debark from the wheelhouse. After the formalities of greeting, including the introduction of children from both parties, Robert insists on being taken down to the crypts of Winterfell, where the dead of House Stark are buried, so he can pay his respects to Eddard's sister. Queen Cersei objects, but is disregarded by Robert and quietly led away by her twin brother which 
I think it's something that's mentioned later on, but didn't Ned break tradition by burying Lyanna in the crypts? Like, isn't it only supposed to be the Lords of Winterfell and obviously the former Kings of the North that are buried in there? That might be true. I don't yeah. know. I think it's mentioned later. I, I, I couldn't remember. I just know that it's mostly, it's just for Starks pretty much or down there. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Some, something in my mind, I, I, well, we'll discuss it when and if it comes up, but I think he broke tradition by burying Lyanna down there. Ned asks Robert about his journey, and Robert complains the distance that had to be traveled in the vast emptiness of the North. Robert then describes the advantages of living in the South, telling Ned he has to see the wonders, the warmth, and the undress of the women. They descend into the crypt, which is an effort for the out-of-shape Robert. Robert wants to visit the tomb of Ned's sister, Lyanna Stark, who was his betrothed. They pass the dead of House Stark with statues in front of the crypts, each lord holding a sword on his lap with a dire wolf at his feet. They arrive at the last of the occupied crypts. Here, there are three tombs for Ned's father, Rickard, his older brother, Brandon, and his sister, Lyanna. Robert declares that Ned should have buried Lyanna on a sunny hillside, but Ned explains that she was a Stark of Winterfell and belongs here, as was her wish. Ned remembers her dying with only he and his friend Helen Reed nearby, while Robert recalls taking his vengeance on Rhaegar Targaryen for what he did to Lyanna, regretting that he only got to kill him once. Ned suggests that they should return to the surface where Robert's wife will be waiting. Robert replies that the others can take his wife, but they start back up all the same. Great line. Robert. <laughs> As they return, Ned asks about John Aaron, and Robert declares that he has never seen a man die so quickly, from healthy to dead within a fortnight. Ned asks how John's widow, Liza, is bearing the grief, explaining Catelyn's fears for her sister. Robert confides that he thinks John's death has driven Liza mad and that she has taken her son back to the Eyrie. Robert had hoped to foster the sickly boy with Tywin Lannister, but Liza refused to hear of it and left in the dead of night. Cersei was furious. Ned, who does not trust Tywin, is relieved. Ned asks to foster Robert Aaron himself, but Tywin has already agreed, and Ned taking him as a ward would be an insult to Tywin. Ned comments that Robert should visit the Wall, but Robert responds that he has more important concerns, such as replacing Lord Aaron, who held several important positions, such as Warden of the East. Ned reminds Robert that the title traditionally goes with the domain of House Aaron, but Robert declares that he will not appoint a six-year-old Robert Aaron as Warden of the East. Ned reminds- I mean, that oh, makes sense, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. No, it's true. Ned reminds Robert that during times of peace, the title is only an honor. The king is not pleased. The son is not the father. Though when the boy is grown, the title will be given back. Robert mentions that he also needs a new hand of the king and offers the position to Ned so they can work together again. Then Robert tells Ned how his responsibilities bore him and complains that he is surrounded by flatterers and fools. He insists that he wants Ned to come to the south, to King's Landing, to be Hand of the King, the second most important man in the kingdom. I'm sorry for cutting you off there, but you're right. It does make sense not to give the title to a six-year-old, 
um, especially since Robert thinks that a war is coming, like, and he's correct in thinking that. Um, he did, like he's, he doesn't know from where, but he knows a war is coming. And I don't know who would who do you think you would name as warden of the east at this time? I don't even know. I'm trying to think of the eastern families. Like, well, there's Lord Royce, Waymar's father. I can't remember his first name right now, but um, I think he does oversee. Like he he's one of those suitors after Liza Aaron when she returns there. But yeah. Uh, it's it's hard to remember all the houses keep them straight it's also because like none of the other like i don't think any of the other eastern title lands really like hold as much weight like you know for the west and south you got tyrell and lannister so like got all the big names involved like Mm -hmm. the east doesn't similarly have such a like big name to like take on the role and if I'm remembering the geography correctly anyway, uh, correctly as well, I think the only port or one of the only major ports in the east is actually a port in the north where the Manderleys are in charge. So I don't know. The, the whole geography of uh, Westeros is, is tricky. So moving back into the plot, Ned does not want the position of Hand of the King and tries to declare himself unworthy of the honor. Robert only jokes that he is not trying to honor Ned, but get him to run the kingdom for him, relating the lowborn saying that the king eats and the hand takes the Robert asks for at least a smile, but Ned replies that it is said to be so cold in the north that a man's laughter freezes in his throat and chokes him to death. King Robert also offers to marry his son, Prince Joffrey, to Ned's 11-year-old daughter, Sansa Stark, to join the houses of Stark and Baratheon as he and Lyanna were supposed to. Ned hesitates to make this decision, wishing to speak to his wife, but Robert asks him not to take too long. Ned is filled with a sense of foreboding, knowing that Winterfell is where he belongs and winter is coming. You're right. Stark must always be in Winterfell. Yeah. And you shouldn't leave, Ned. You are absolutely right to, to think that you shouldn't And go. then, you know, I just want to say this too, is that he wasn't surprised at being offered the hand of the king, but he was surprised by the offer for Joffrey and Sansa to be made. Yeah. I don't know. As a reader, it shouldn't, and I guess having watched the show beforehand, it shouldn't, doesn't really surprise us because Robert loves Ned. Like, he doesn't say this directly but he's the brother that he never had, even though Robert does have two brothers and uh, who he can't stand. But- um, For Stannis and Renly. Yeah, especially Stan. Well, we'll get into it later, but um, yeah. It, 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 it doesn't really surprise me that he would offer his best friend, who is also a noble family, to marry- his son and everything like that. I guess with it being the crown prince, it is a little surprising. Like maybe Arya marrying Tommen would be less surprising or, or Marcella marrying Bran or something would be less surprising, but yeah, it's Robert. He makes decisions right there on the, on where he wants to go. Yeah. So we move on to chapter five, John one, everybody's favorite emo boy. Our, POV character is Jon Snow, and the location is Winterfell. A feast is held in Winterfell in honor of King Robert's royal visit. 
John decides he is thankful his bastardy has regulated him to the far end of the hall with the younger squires instead of the king's family. Here he can drink as much as he wants. He does have a man's thirst after all and mingle freely with those around him. John watches the king and his family as they arrive. He recognizes Queen Cersei's false smile and he is disappointed with fat, red-faced King Robert. The eight-year-old Princess Marcella seems to be smitten with her escort, Rob, leading John to decide that she is insipid. Arya is escorted by a plump young Prince Tommen. The 12-year-old Crown Prince Joffrey, who is even taller than Rob, is escorting the radiant Sansa. John decides he does not like Joffrey's pouty lips or the disdain the prince seems to hold for Winterfell. He also notes that the queen's brother, Jaime Lannister, looks like a proper king, and that the waddling dwarf, Tyrion Lannister, is grotesquely fascinating, as ugly as Jaime and Cersei are beautiful. The last to enter are Benjen Stark and Theon Greyjoy. John feeds his dire wolf ghost under the table, and watches the pup silently face down a full-grown dog three times his size. Bringing his wolf to the feast is another perk of being the bastard. John is soon joined by his uncle Benjen, who asks John how much he's had to drink, adding that John is older than he was when he first got really drunk. Good thing he's a bastard and nobody cares what he's up to. Yeah. Benjen asks about Ghost. And John explains that he named him Ghost for his white color and because he never makes a sound. Benjen then asks John why he is not at the main table. And John says flatly that Lady Catelyn thought seating a bastard with the king might give offense. Which it just goes to show how much Lady Catelyn or Catelyn Stark really hates John. Because in Westerosi history, while bastards can't inherit, they are seen as children, like equal to the other children they just can't inherit anything yeah it's very like she hates john so yeah. much and like she does like i not like she does verbalize that at later points well not verbalize it but she thinks it so like and she's very disparaging towards john to, in ways that you're like this woman does not like him yeah if she should be mad at anyone it should be um ned not John, who was just born. Like, he, it's not his fault that he was born. But Benjen comments that Eddard does not seem festive, and John adds that neither does the queen, probably because of King Robert's visit to the crypts. Benjen commends John for keen observation and remarks that he could use a man like him on the wall. John asks if he can truly return to the wall with Benjen. Benjen replies that the wall is a hard place for a boy, but John counters that he will turn 15 on his next name day, and it's said bastards grow up faster than purebloods. John thinks about how all of his half-brothers and sisters have futures, but there is no future for a bastard. Benjen says he should know a woman and father a bastard or two first to know what he'll be giving up. This angers John, who states that he will never father a bastard, and runs off with Ghost at his heels before anyone can see him cry. And like, this just shows you how Catelyn has broken him because like, he literally thinks being having bastards is like this terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, his own existence. Meanwhile, everybody has them pretty mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah, his own existence 
just hurts him, the fact that he exists. As John is leaving, Tyrion speaks with him from a ledge in, a, in the deserted yard and asks if he can take a look at Ghost. John offers to help him down, but Tyrion jumps down, acrobatically landing on his hands and vaulting to his feet. Uh, this is also something that's very different from the book and the show. While Peter Dinklage is a small man, he's not like Tyrion. Like Tyrion is very, very small, has a twisted leg, is extremely ugly. And uh, yeah, but he also is extremely acrobatic somehow. Yeah, very agile. Yeah, somehow with his twisted leg, he can still pull off maneuvers. Ghost is uncertain about Tyrion, but submits to an examination at John's command. Tyrion asks if John is Eddard's bastard. John brittles, and Tyrion apologizes that as a dwarf, he can usually speak as he pleases, like a jester. He comments that John seems to have more of the north of him than his half-siblings. Tyrion advises John never to forget who and what he is so no one can use it against him. John questions what Tyrion would know about being a bastard. Tyrion replies that all dwarves are bastards in their father's eyes and that all dwarves are not bastards. Not all bastards need be dwarves. Yeah. Tyrion's uh he's very witty in the books he's, you know he's, he's also he's also alluding to the fact that John looks a lot more like Ned than basically all the other children do yeah well like um, I think the tv show makes the children look more similar like I think you get Rob and John looking way more closer <laughs> and like even Theon they all look very similar yeah they could be siblings but in the books that is very much not the case. John and Arya are only the ones that look more so like Ned compared to the others. Yeah. And the rest all favor Catelyn. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Will how children looking like their parents play out in the storyline at all? I, I, you know, hmm, who knows? And why would it be so stressed that John looks exactly like Ned? Hmm, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. They bring it up. Freaking constantly early on, which I totally forgot about. And I'm like, tick, tick. Yeah. We're just bringing that up a lot. Yeah. So our next chapter is chapter six, Catelyn two. And our POV character is Catelyn Tully. And the location is Winterfell. Ned and Catelyn are in Catelyn's chambers after making love. Uncomfortable with the warmth of the room, which is heated by the hot springs beneath the castle, Ned opens the windows. As she watches him from the bed, Catelyn thinks how he looks the same as when she married him and hopes that they have conceived another child, which right there goes to show the age difference between the show characters and the book characters' counterparts. Yeah. Like she, Catelyn's still- Because definitely in the show, they're done having children. Yeah, yeah. And here they're very much like, we could do for another, I think. Yeah, I think she specifically wants to have another son for him for some reason if I remember correctly. But moving right along, the couple discusses King Robert's offer, which Ned intends to refuse. Catelyn insists that he must accept as to not offend the king, which might put them all in danger. While Catelyn contemplates the omen of a dire wolf killed by a stag, Ned wishes his brother Brandon had lived to be Lord of Winterfell instead. This is something that I've been waiting to discuss because Catelyn is a uh, ladder climber in in the books. Um, Like 
the show, she they switch this and make it that she doesn't want Ned to go off. And we'll get more into it when they make her much more of a loving wife. Yeah. Yeah. And and not the cold hearted social climbing wife that she truly is. Yeah. She wants her husband to be the second most powerful man in the kingdom. Like she wants that glory on her pretty much. Honestly, as she should, like, even if I like loved Ned, I'd be like, you're going to go be handed the king, right? Yeah. Fair enough, I guess. It's also interesting to talk uh, to think about uh, what it would have been like if Brandon had survived and became Lord of Winterfell, because Brandon would have married Catelyn, because that was the ta- the offer that was on the table, and Ned would have yeah. been free to you know marry marry someone else, someone who we haven't really named yet, but will come up very shortly. Um, that she will. Yeah, they are interrupted by a guardsman named Desmond, who says that Maester Lewin has an urgent message. The maester is shown in and explains that a carved wooden box containing a fine new glass lens was left in his observatory while he was napping, which, hmm, I wonder if he really was napping. Those maesters, man. The way it was delivered made the maester wonder, and he discovered a hidden message beneath a false bottom. Maester Lewin says that he has not read it and will not give it to Ned because it is addressed to Catelyn. Catelyn takes the message apprehensively. It is from her sister, Liza, and written in a secret language only the two sisters share. Catelyn immediately burns the message after reading it, but explains to Ned that the message claims John Aaron was murdered by Queen Cersei and her family. Okay. Can I just say that this is like way more ridiculous in the book than in the show? Like, this is a mystery mysteries like going on right here like how did the box get there what is this about who delivered the box what is going on right and why if it's written in a secret language that only Catelyn and Liza can understand is Catelyn so like anxious to burn it and get rid of it like right like hmm. there is a lot going on here yeah all right moving right along Catelyn insists that now Ned must be hand of the king to find the truth behind Liza's accusations. <sighs> Which the last hand of the king was murdered by the Lannisters. So, you know, why don't you become hand of the king? I'm sure nothing bad will happen to you, Ned. He'll get uh, murdered too, why don't you? Yeah. Uh, Maester Lewin agrees with Catelyn, pointing out that the hand's authority will help determine the truth and protect Liza and her son. Ned reminds them both that his father went south once at a king's summoning and never returned. Uh, Lewin replies that it was a different time and a different king. Catelyn insists that if Ned truly loves King Robert like a brother, he will not leave him to face the Lannisters on his own. Ned then makes his decision. He will go, but Catelyn must stay behind to govern Winterfell and teach his heir, Rob, how to be a proper lord. He allows that young Rickon may stay with her as well, but the others must come south. Sansa to wed Joffrey, and Arya to learn the ways of a southern court. Catelyn reluctantly agrees, but begs that the seven-year-old Bran be allowed to stay. Ned insists that Bran must bridge the gap between Rob and Joffrey. The house will be safer for it, and Catelyn has to agree. Catelyn feels lonely already. Maester Lewin asks about Jon Snow, and Catelyn's anger flashes. 
She remembers the bastard child that Ned brought back with him in the early days of their marriage. She understood Ned fathering a bastard son, but could not understand raising a bastard in the castle. There were rumors that Ashara Dane was the boy's mother, but Ned forbade Catelyn from talking about it. Hmm, interesting. Uh, insisting that all she needed to know was that Jon Snow was his blood. <laughs> Ned would never send Jon away, though, and Catelyn could never forgive him for that. All right, let's just let's just say it now. Do yeah. we do we here on this podcast do a uh, subscribe to the theory that Ashardane is in fact John's mother? So right, I'm I, and I I'm ninety nine percent sure that Ned is his father. There was a little doubt in my mind that it might have been Benjamin because as we get into later books or Brandon, as we get into later books, it's mentioned that Ashardane slept with one of the Starks a character who we haven't met yet remembers that. But yeah, we, we think Ashara Dane is uh, Jon Snow's mother and Ned Stark is his father. And like, especially because you have to think of how early it is in these books right now that we yeah. are getting a lot of Ashara Dane and we mm-hmm. are getting a lot of Jon's mother being important to the plot of the story somehow. And mm-hmm. like, it kind of gets pushed a lot early on. Like, especially even, we'll see, we'll see like, when we cover some chapters for the next episode of this, like it just kind of continues. Right. And especially with George's original idea of it only being a trilogy, why introduce this concept so early if it wasn't going to be important? Yeah. It just, it doesn't make sense. Especially like, you know, they make a lot of points to say that John looks like Ned. Like if it was supposed to be a red herring, like this is a lot of work to put in for a red herring. Yeah. Agreed. And a lot of words to waste for such a red herring when you could do something else. Yeah. And if there are people listening who are only show watchers and haven't read the books, or even if you are a book reader and you don't subscribe to uh, Ned and Ashara equaling John, well, I should say, I think what they basically did was give Jon Snow his Targaryen background. I think that's going to be Fagon, Aegon, Young Griff. Like they took that character yeah. and just gave it to John. And I think I think the reason to do that is just to cut out a character that yeah, they didn't want to have to introduce or deal with. Exactly. So to finish off this chapter, Catelyn insists that John must leave Winterfell. Oh, also, I guess if we don't we don't really know if Ned and Ashara were married. Presumably they weren't, but if they were, uh, John would actually be heir to Winterfell and like Ned's firstborn son and everything like that. Like he would have a claim to the north and all that so that would be interesting i didn't think about that but like yeah it would be interesting though i you know as we'll get into in a second but like i do think this is just an example of how much she hates john because she's gonna send this poor boy to the wall instead of keeping him at winterfell yeah but also ned i get that you don't can't have a bastard at court but isn't there a way you could take john as like a servant or a yeah. knight's hand or like a squire like why can't john come and be something else and like do you really think uh <clears throat> do you think robert would really have a problem with john bringing it or with uh ned bringing his bastard son to court rob uh john's or ugh, i'm getting all these names screwed up robert's got bastards all over the kingdom including a lot in king's landing like yeah and like like i said i like 
sure you might not he might not be able to like bring john to like court court like yeah court matters but like john can't live there and be a squire and like be with the family like there's not a way for that you can't tell me ned couldn't have made that happen in some way like right. there's like it annoys me from the perspective of like there were definitely other options besides john stays at winterfell or john goes to the wall like there were other things that we could have done here agreed like they could have even sent like you can't you tell me you couldn't have sent john somewhere else altogether like yeah like maybe to be with the Danes or something, because for some reason the Danes love Ned Stark, who suppo- who supposedly you know raped Ashara and then killed Arthur Dane, but for some reason the Danes love him. Hmm, I don't. I'm, I wonder why. But moving, we'll get we'll get to that later. But moving right back into the plot, I guess Catelyn insists that John must leave Winterfell, but Ned argues that there will be no place for John at court. Maester Lewin mentions John's ambitions to join the Night's Watch. Ned considers this for a while and finally agrees to let John take the Black, though not until they are all ready to leave for the South. He wants John to enjoy his last few days. Ned decides that when it is time, he will tell John himself. So that closes out that chapter, and we move on to Chapter 7, Arya 1. Our POV character is Arya Stark, and the location is Winterfell. Arya is dismayed at her crooked stitching. She can't match her sister Sansa's needlework. Their governess, Septa Mordain, coos over Princess Marcella's needlework, which Arya thinks is also crooked, which just goes to show this world because the princess made it. It's great, even though it's really not. Sansa is whispering with Janine Poole and Beth Cassell. When Arya asks what they are whispering about, She is told it is about how handsome Prince Joffrey is and that he has complimented Sansa and is going to marry her. Arya points out that Jon Snow thinks Joffrey looks like a girl. Sansa laments that Jon gets jealous because he is a bastard, but Arya defends him, drawing drawing the Septa's attention to her, which is something um, I guess Sansa takes more after the mother because all the other Stark children like love John and treat him like a brother, especially Arya. But uh, Sansa does refer to him as a bastard and everything like that. Um, and that's also, I think we see a lot later that Sansa is very much the type of person that knows she is destined for like ruling and greatness. So she wants to be perfect and she's not going to acknowledge her bastard brother. She's he's the half brother. He's not a real brother. Mm -hmm. And here we also see uh, the subtle influence of the faith of the seven that Catelyn brought with her, that a septa is overseeing them and like there is their governor, uh, governoress. So septa Mordain inspects Arya's stitches and pronounces her dissatisfaction. Humiliated Arya bolts for the door, stopping long enough to be forced to bow to princess Marcella. Arya wishes she had some of her sister's skill and beauty. She has her father's looks, not the beauty of their mother like Sansa. Janine used to call her horse face, which was all the more hurtful because the only thing Arya could do better than Sansa was ride. That and manage a household since Sansa has no head for figures. Arya finds her direwolf pup, Nymeria, waiting for her and together they go watch the boys sparring in the practice yard, not daring to go back to her room where she would be found and punished. 
on the covered bridge overlooking the yard, Arya comes across Jon Snow seated on a sill with Ghost watching the fighting below. She sits down beside him and they watch together. In the yard below, heavily padded Brand and Tommen, which is just hilarious to think of, are fighting each other with wooden swords under the watchful eye of Sir Roderick Cassell, the master at arms. The group of spectators include Rob and Theon. John comments that the swords are a bit more exhausting than needlework, but Arya responds that they are also more fun. Arya remembers thinking when she was little that she was a bastard like John because they were the only children to take after their father. When Arya asks why John is not down in the yard with the others, John explains that bastards are not allowed to damage princes. Only true-born swords can do that. Arya says that she could fight as well as Bran, who was only seven while she is nine, but John says she doesn't have enough strength for the longsword. John points out that the newly arrived Prince Joffrey is wearing a sigil that has both the stag and lion on it, giving his mother's Lannister sigil equality to the royal Baratheon sigil. John suggests that Arya should wear a combination sigil for the Starks and the Tullys, but Arya jokes that a wolf with a trout in its mouth would look silly. She questions why a girl would need a sigil if she isn't allowed to fight. John shrugs that girls get the sigils but not the swords, while bastards get the swords but not the sigils. Accurate. Yeah. yeah. Below, Bran has knocked Tommen down, and Sir Roderick calls Rob and Joffrey out for a bout. Joffrey acts like it is beneath his dignity to fight the Starks with practice swords. He suggests real swords, and Rob readily accepts. John comments to Arya that Joffrey truly is, quote-unquote, a little shit. Sir Roderick states that he will only allow blunted tourney swords. Joffrey's scarred bodyguard, Sander Clegane, remarks that he killed a man with a real sword when he was only 12. Joffrey makes a few more condescending remarks that enrage Rob, then feigns a yawn and leaves with Tommen. John encourages Arya to go to her room and face her punishment. Arya insists that it is not fair, but John says that nothing is fair as he walks away with Ghost, being all emo John. Arya returns to her room and finds not only Septa Mordain, but also her mother. Pretty straightforward chapter. Yeah, I really do think most of these early chapters are just getting a feel for the children and kind of the children's dynamic with each other. Mm -hmm. And they took a lot of this out to do the show, but they did like different scenes. Like um, we see Bran practicing with his bow rather than fighting Tommen with a sword and Arya can shoot the target in the middle where Bran can't, showing off that she has skills that Bran doesn't have. And then later on, we get a scene with Joffrey Oh, no, that's in the next episode. Never mind. I'll, I'll save that yeah. for later. But the rest of it's kind of just removed. Yeah. And next we move on to chapter eight, Brand Two, the final chapter for this episode. Our POV character is Brand Stark, and the location is Winterfell. The majority of the men have gone boar hunting with the king, leaving Bran behind with John, Rickon, and the girls. John seems to be angry with everyone, even though he's going to the wall with un- Uncle Benjen. So Bran does not look very hard for him. At first, Bran was excited about leaving Winterfell and going to King's Landing on a real horse, not just a pony. He remembers the story Old Nan told him about ghosts, terrible dungeons, and the dragon skulls on the walls. 
He dreams of being a member of the Kingsguard someday and is anxious to meet the greatest living knight, Sir Barristan the Bold. But now Bran is also apprehensive about leaving the only home he has ever known. He will miss all those he is leaving behind, even his pony. <laughs> Not being able to stand the goodbyes, Bran goes to the castle godswood with his dire wolf. Unlike all his siblings, he still hasn't named his wolf. None of the names he tries seem right. Eventually, Bran gets tired of trying to teach his wolf to fetch and decides to go climbing. His wolf does not want him to go and howls when he climbs up a tree onto the armory roof. Bran spends too much of his time climbing the roofs of Winterfell. His mother claims that he, he could climb before he could walk. Since Bran cannot remember learning to climb or learning to walk, he assumes that it is true. His mother is also terrified that one day he might fall and kill himself. Once Bran kept a promise not to climb for almost a fortnight and was miserable the entire time. Finally, he gave in, but confessed to his crime the next day. When his father ordered him to the godswood to cleanse himself, they found him sleeping in the tallest tree in the grove the next morning. His father, angry and laughing, told him that from now on, he was free to climb so long as his mother didn't catch him. Others have tried to stop him, but to no avail. The guards tried to stop him, but they were too slow, and escaping them was fun. Old Nan once told him a story of a boy who climbed too high and was struck by lightning and had his eyes eaten out by crows, but Bran likes to feed the crows. Interesting that he likes to feed the crows and they have never seemed interested in eating his eyes. Maester Lewin made a clay boy and threw it off the wall as an example, but Bran only responded that he is not made of clay and he never falls. Bran is climbing towards the broken tower where he likes to feed the crows when he is startled by voices coming from the first keep, the oldest part of the castle. At first, he doesn't recognize them as Queen Cersei and her brother, Sir Jamie. Cersei is telling Jamie that he should be Hand of the King and that Eddard Stark will put them in danger because the king loves him like a brother. Jamie jokes that Robert hates his brothers. Unamused, Cersei insists that Robert will listen to Eddard. Jamie states that he prefers honorable men to ambitious men like Robert's brothers and Littlefinger. Cersei says that she is worried about what Liza Aaron may have said to the Starks, but Jamie tells her not to worry, as Liza has no proof. Despite this, Cersei remains fearful that Eddard might betray her son Joffrey when he takes the throne or convince Robert to put her aside. Bran grows frightened by what he overhears, but wants to see who is talking, so he climbs over the window and then drops down. He can see a man and a woman inside, naked and wrestling, fondling and moaning. He recognizes Cersei just as her eyes open and see him. Bran loses his grip as he tries to escape, but he catches himself on the window's ledge. Cersei and Jamie come to look at him. Jamie extends a hand to Bran and pulls him up onto the ledge. As Bran begins to relax, Jamie asks him how old he is. Bran tells him seven. Then Jamie loathingly says, The things I do for love, and shoves Bran backward out the window into the empty air. You know, and I don't think it's stated enough that Cersei really does think Robert will find another woman and leave her. Well, it's not until later books, but there is an exact plot to do that. Um, do you want me to bring it up now? I mean, we said we might discuss spoiler things. Uh, we might as well. We're at the end of the episode anyway, so spoilers. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
That's what Renly was trying to do with Marjorie. He brought Marjorie Tyrell to court to get Robert to leave Cersei and marry her instead. And then when everything goes down with Robert and everything, Renly marries Marjorie instead. But yeah, he, his plan was to, because it's kind of, I'm trying to remember if it's just a- Well, the Tyrells also have a lot of money too, the that, same way Lannisters do. And their money comes from harvesting, like planting and growing things, which is a yearly profit. Whereas the Lannister money comes from having gold under their castle, which eventually will run out which I think is only a show plot. I don't think it's a plot in the books, if I remember correctly. But, yeah. you know, eventually it will run out. But yeah, so that w- that was a legitimate fear of hers to have. You know, <laughs> she also admits that, like, Robert clearly does not love her mm-hmm. because he still loves Lyanna, but, like, mm-hmm. that he would easily trade her in Yeah, is basically her thought process. Yeah. Well, that's happened in real history that, uh, kings have put aside i mean if george based this on the war of the roses that all goes back to henry the eighth or whatever isn't henry the fifth whichever henry it was the one that had all the wives that cut off their heads and everything um i think it was henry the eighth but yeah the and, yeah divorce and, beheaded died divorce beheaded survived yeah yeah and who uh who who got to take over after he died so you know yeah uh, is there anything else you'd like to discuss or like any differences you want to point out or? Uh, no, I think we really got a lot of the differences and there's not really anything I could think of that's like we didn't cover. Yeah. These early chapters, while there's a lot of differences, it's mostly just in Catlin. Right. A lot of the differences yeah. that like matter, matter. Yeah. Yeah. That, kind of far- how we treat Catlin as a character. Yeah. Her, what her character is motivated by, whether we should like her or not. Um, it's all developed later on too as well. Um, but for the most part, I know George worked very closely with them in the first three seasons, I believe. And then the fourth season, he was kind of around, but then he went off to presumably write the books. And then that's fifth season and further on, they kind of went off his material. I would say the first four seasons are an adaptation of A Song of Ice and Fire, and then season five, I would say, is inspired by A Song of Ice and Fire, um, because it goes very differently. It's interesting here, too, the world that he builds. He gives us this character of Jamie Lannister, and, you know, he's just evil. He just presumably tried to murder a child, and in later books, we're going to get his perspective on things, and our ideas of him might change. Yeah, it's definitely, like I said, I think the writing's really good. I think the TV show does an okay job for the most part. Like mm. even, I know I'm a little bit ahead of you right now, but I think, you know, they end fairly well on very specific chapters. Mm. Yeah, the major changes are Catelyn's character and the ages of the characters. Like there's no avoiding that as a major, major change. You know, Ned Stark is my age in the books for crying out loud. But, uh, you know, oh, well, uh, maybe someday they'll do an animated adaptation and it'll be more faithful to the books once all the books are finished. Uh, we'll have to see, because if if it does have a very different ending, as we suspect it will, I think fans are going to want to see that done some way. Like I said, I think that's why we're not getting the books, because I just think he's going to wait until he's dead to publish them. He doesn't want to be around. 
I think at the end of the day, we're looking at very different things happening. Yeah. And the reaction, like you, like you said previously, he's, he has he a lot can't of please everybody yeah, yeah. and he has to do it perfectly. Agreed. So yeah, it doesn't matter what he does. If he does it really differently, people are going to be mad. They're going to go, you know, he, that's not what he planned to do the whole time. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, sure. Of course. That's not what he planned. No, we just have a Shara Dane in the, within the first 10 chapters of the book. Sure. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Makes sense. And we meet Danes in later books that mention how how there was more to Ashara and uh, Ned than the Starks know. We'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens. At some point, we will get the answers, hopefully, that we want. <laughs> but hopefully. Yeah. If there's nothing else, I'll move right into the outro. This has been the Once Again Podcast. Any questions, comments, or critiques can be addressed to our email at onceagainpod at gmail.com. Follow us on our social media accounts, Once Again Pod, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. If you would like to contribute to the podcast, we have several tiers available on patreon.com slash onceagainpod. As always, a like, follow, or share would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. And remember, we will entertain you. We will always entertain you.